Welcome back, Coughlin Bond listeners. We're here with episode 117 today, and we have a special guest in who has got an amazing backstory and, and probably moved into one of Tony's favourite topics. Now, the topic we're talking about today, Tony actually doesn't understand um, that I say, but he does understand the theory behind it. And I, I guess when we always sit down and talk, it's, it's something he wants to strive towards. So to get a bit of background today is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but our special guest today is Paul Smooker. Paul, welcome to the Coughlin Bond podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. So, Paul, we will be talking about, I guess, the work you're doing at the moment in cybersecurity and machine learning and AI. And when I say it's Tony's favourite topic, um, I feel like every time he asks me to build something within Kafka Bond, it has the tale of does it include AI um, and will it include AI in the future? So I, I can see him bursting with a lot of questions. Tony, you'd be excited for this one, wouldn't you? Absolutely. I've known Paul for a couple of years now, so Paul is... Uh, a client of ours who came to us uh, through our Warfighters program where we look after veterans. Uh, and Paul has got a distinguished career, military career as well. And also after that too, and he has moved into a partner in a firm in cybersecurity now. So we know Paul uh, very well from that basis as well. And Tony, that's where I want to start today, Paul. Your background obviously is in the military. Um, can you Can you sort of start, what sort of you know, inspired you to join, um, and what was that journey sort of joining within the army and your service service history? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so I grew up in a small town in Far East Gippsland in Victoria. Um, so population of around sort of two thousand people when I was there. Um, and I've had a I've got a long sort of family lineage within the defence force. So um, my grandfather was in World War Two. His brothers served as well, so he was in the Air Force. Uh, my father was a um, was in the Army in the build-up to us towards the end of, of Vietnam but didn't actually deploy, but he, he was in there as well. My uncle deployed to uh, Vietnam. So I've always had the Defence Force and the military sort of around around me and, um, and going through school and especially growing up in a country town, you're um, probably a bit more outdoorsy, you're, you're playing a lot of sport, you're doing different things and... I was sort of sort of naturally gravitated towards the defence force and in particular the army, um, but yeah, that's sort of what was my motivation for um, for looking at it, especially as a as a young kid. And then um, I was fortunate enough to gain entry into the um, Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra straight from high school. So I went and joined the army at eighteen, um, and then um, so that's a university, Defence Force University, and I studied information technology through my three years there. Yeah, so with with that starting that um, you're doing so you're doing sort of a uni course whilst also doing you know your training camp in a sense because I, I visited mates that sort of signed up for service where they went away to uh, Willow. Where's the place near Wagga? I'm sorry, I just can't remember okay. now. Yeah, so so they went and started there. Um, is yours a little bit different to that? It is, yes. Um, so I was um. I went through the officer selection, so I um into become an army officer. So that um there's two different different routes you can take to become an army officer is through the Australian Defence Force Academy or ADFA as it's known, or direct entry into the Royal Military College, Duntroon. Um with the ADFA program you do um spend three years at university and they you are in the army, so you do start your service on day one and they go through induction and and um and you do start learning everything to do with the military from from day one but you also integrate your um your university studies in that so um you obviously have a heavy uni timetable but 
outside that and built into that, there's a lot of military education as well. And then at the end of those three years, you uh, graduate ADFA, then you move to the Royal Military College there for 12 months of intensive Army officer training when you graduate as a lieutenant. Those who do direct entry into the Royal Military College do 18 months, um, but the first six months of that is essentially spread across three years at ADFA, which um, enables you to, to enter second class um, at RMC um, and do 12 months of that training. Yeah, that's, uh, I think your schedule is a little bit heavier than mine at university. I, I think I was clocking about 12 hours in class for the whole week. Uh, yours sounds <laughs> like I tell you that, that's in one day with what you're doing. So uh, It depends. Yeah. Some people were probably lucky enough to do that in their last year there, but um, yeah. I'll tell you that you just you don't want to put your, put your head too far above the, um, above the threshold if you haven't got too many uni hours. Yeah, definitely not. So, so Paul, basically you were paid a full-time salary to go to university and get a degree at the same time. Exactly. So, yeah, you start full-time employment um, from day one um, and also through the, the Defence Force Academy, you don't have a hex debt or anything at the end of it. So you get essentially your degree um, provided to you um, as long as, as well as your military training and you also pull a full-time wage um, for the, the whole duration. So you didn't have to have a part-time job as a dishwasher or working in a bar? No, not at all. The, the military training was probably the part-time job, so you, you paid for it in different ways. Yes. Yeah, you do. Very much so. So from there, um, you finished the studies. Um, where did you move from from there within the service? Uh, so upon graduating, I joined the Royal Australian Corps of Signals, which um, which looks after all the communications, ICT um, and command and control aspects for the for the Army. Um, so once I graduated as a lieutenant from uh, the Royal Military College, I went straight to Townsville into the 3rd Combat Signal Regiment um, and they provide that integrated communication support to the 3rd Brigade, which is based out of Townsville. So that's obviously where you're getting your background in the IT space. Um, did you do any tours or anything like that um, from the communication side, or is it all based within Australia? So with um with my first with your first sort of posting out, you you go in as a lieutenant and you you get a troop, which is anywhere from sort of 20 to to 40 people, depending on what you're doing, and you provide the command and leadership for that troop, um and provide that that sort of integrated support to different level of um of of warfighters or combat forces, um within my first two years, which were in Townsville, I didn't deploy, but um. After after my first two years in Townsville, I went into um, Special Operations Command into one of the units there um, where I stayed for four years and, and was promoted to captain during that period. And I ended up deploying um, three times to Afghanistan during that period. Um, different roles. So one was more on the operations side, so looking after uh, reporting and, and as people are out doing, um, doing operations, I was sort of monitoring what was happening, providing the support back in the in the base from um, from what they needed. Um, and my second tour was more of the communications um, subject matter expert, providing that communication support to the force element. Um, and then my third one was more of a, um, a remediation. It was towards the end of the, the bulk of the Afghanistan deployment. So we're sort of looking at different uh, remediation activities. So, what communications gear could we could we bring home, and what did what was needed, what needed refurbishment after such a long time in theatre. So, um, yeah, I was really lucky to to deploy three times over there during my um my career, especially within sort of that area. Yeah. So you you spoke about um, I guess growing up, you sort of thought you'd always go throughout military just with the background and you know with the family, but. 
I want to touch on leadership skills. You, you, you sound like you've gone through leadership roles. Is that something that you've naturally always had? Um, has that come from a sporting background? You know, was it at school or is it something that you've sort of worked pretty hard on through through your career? Yeah, it's definitely something which um, which you have to continually work on. It's um, there's there's a lot of different theories out there, and there's a lot of ex-military people who are who are parting with their knowledge on leadership and within the military you have command and leadership so command is is what you're you're given essentially so that's the authority of the role you're in and then the leadership is how you how you work within that and how you work with the team and your personal attributes and traits and and how you achieve you know the mission um so i did have a, a very heavy sporting background growing up i really enjoyed um aussie rules which is, is quite strong obviously in country victoria um, and then that naturally progressed into the to the um, the sporting clubs at the Australian Defence Force Academy and the Royal Military College. Um, so I, I did enjoy those aspects of things. Um, I wouldn't say I'm a natural leader. I, I probably classify myself as a bit of an introvert. Um, but the quality of the people around you, within particularly in the roles that I've filled, make make leadership much easier than what it could be. You always have your challenges with um, different personalities or different beliefs. But um, I suppose the biggest thing I learned was uh, learn to understand and and then look at what how you can um, how you can provide guidance to those people to work towards that common goal um, and and also the trust of the people who work for you if if you're out the front pushing forward and you don't trust the people that are behind you um, or if people don't trust you then um, leadership can become quite difficult. Definitely. So I guess where did the point come that you decided that, look, enough in the military, um, I want to move to the outside world in a sense? Like I guess everyone, you know, we've spoken to in the past has always said that it's such a community feeling and a brotherhood um, being within the services. When did you sort of decide it was time to move on? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And um, and I, I probably come to the realisation towards um, or sort of, that my career was coming to a close um, when I was a junior major. So I was promoted to major and spent um, two years in Melbourne at a um, in a training role, so looking after the, the training management for the chorus signals. Um, and I'd had a pretty good career to that point. I, I was um, pretty beaten up. I've got a few injuries um, that I was carrying for a long time. And I got to that point and realised that moving forward, it would be quite a quite a struggle for me to maintain the level of um, level of fitness and the and the level of focus that I would need. Um, and being in the roles which I would be heading towards, so more command and leadership positions at a, at a higher level, sort of squadron and unit level, that would that would need me to be at my best and my peak. And I, I just didn't think that I could meet that level of um, of all that standard and that meant that um, I sort of looked at that point to see what my options were and in 2018 um, was when I did transition out of the of the military into uh, when I was in Melbourne so I transitioned out and stayed in Melbourne so um, that was the end of my career there. It's, it's interesting it's a it's a hard one to sort of take that backward step and and sort of look to say you know I guess when you're on a great career path and, and you know you're obviously heading higher into the military that you know, I need to be at my best, whether it's physically and mentally. Um, that would have been a hard thing to step back and have a look at. Yeah, definitely. And I think it was um, 
my the core sort of period of my career was quite a busy period and anyone in the military over those um sort of the 2010s to, to 20 would would say the same so it's very easy to get caught up in the short-term goals and short-term opportunities such as deployments and um and different postings but it was good to to have a role which was a bit less operationally focused and, and start to sort of reflect on where i wanted to be in 10 years time how i wanted to be when i got to that point um and also what was what was important to me at that stage and and having not um having sort of delayed a lot of things in life i was starting to you know start a family and 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 build that part of my life which was um which was starting to take a priority as well yeah so we've moved out into civilian world and you've probably moved into an industry that's only going to grow and grow and grow um especially with i guess everyone being in lockdown at the moment where we're sort of all on our own own systems our own internet at the moment um but cyber security is becoming a massive industry right now Definitely, and it, it has been for a little while, and I suppose now with the publicity that it's getting, it's um, it's becoming more and more mainstream, which is exactly what needs to happen. So towards the end of my career, I, I, and this is sort of very in line with what I was saying, I was looking at what my options were. I'd focused a little bit more heavily on information security on my way out of the military, so I had a good a good foundation and baseline, I, I felt anyway. Um, and then from there, I went into a couple of different roles, and, and transition from the military is People will talk about it as being really difficult, and and um, I definitely agree with that. Coming from a very safe and secure area where you had guaranteed employment for you know as as long as it was possible, um, and then walking into a civilian or the civilian realm, not sort of really understanding what that meant, not having a CV for 15 years, trying to translate what I had done in the military into um, into language that. A civilian organization would understand it was it was a it was a difficult period and, and i like to think i was quite squared away with my administration and uh personal personal admin but it was still still a, a bit of a struggle to get to a point where i was comfortable in in approaching applying for roles making sure i was set up and that's probably also part of the military in me where we like to be very well prepared for what we're doing um and when you go into an unknown sort of realm as such as civilian employment, uh, employment is it was quite difficult, but I think that trades and and cores like signals, which have a technical background, are much better suited to um, to a smoother transition more generally. And that's a that's a that's a pretty big generalisation. But a lot of the skills can translate a lot more simply into a civilian role, and that's what I did into cybersecurity. So I um I did a bit of education on my way out, used again military support to start a master's degree in cyber security um, also part of transition we have funding available to do different courses and, and i ended up focusing on um, frameworks and compliance within cyber security which is um, might not excite too many people but it, it's something which I, I i can sort of naturally get into and and understand and, and provide that advice and guidance to other people and translate sort of from a cyber security um, focused document into what that means in a business role and, and that's definitely something which I found most useful in my sort of in the, especially in recent times. Hey, Jamie, can, Jamie can I cut in here for a moment is that yeah. okay? Yep. Uh, Paul just in we interviewed um, uh, our warfighters ambassador um, he's retired obviously but Lieutenant Colonel Kyle Tyrrell and one of the things in having a discussion with Kyle 
it, it came the difference between if you're working for the NAB and uh, you make a mistake, it costs shareholders money. You know, working at Kofkin Bond, if we make a mistake, it comes out of my pocket. Um, uh, but when it came to leadership in the military, if you made a mistake, potentially someone could lose a limb or lose their life. And especially, I suppose, uh, from you from you guys in respect to the communications and that as well, it, uh, that would have a lot of bearing on you. So I actually see that you're moving into the cybersecurity side because that's an area that you've got clients. You don't want to make a mistake in respect to what you're doing for those clients because that can cost, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, in cybersecurity tax and things like that as well. So, or even just major reputational damage uh, that can occur as well. So, did you see that as a bit of a natural for you um, progression into that type of role? I think so. And um, I think it comes down to just sort of basic risk, risk management. So, understanding a a situation, assessing the risk, working out what you can do, and then sort of implementing a, a path forward. And, and I suppose, you know, it could be um, working out what's important to the business and then reverse engineering on how you support them through that risk management process. And, and through that process as well, you identify different things, you can assume things and also confirm those assumptions. Um, and, and by doing that, you're right, I, I do call on a lot of experience where um, planning the planning process, which we're taught in the military, is, is assumptions based. So you, you might not have all the information at a certain point, but you definitely push forward with what you know. And then along the along that journey, you, you 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 confirm as much as you can from your assumptions to keep building your plan out and making it more robust. And then it's about the sort of the follow-on is the you know the immediate actions. If something goes wrong, you know what you need to do to fix a problem immediately and then you can assess and again move forward. But also you can break the team or if it's a company, for example, you can you can show them what the risk is what the you know the cost benefit of implementing a, a solution is and then if it doesn't come off these are some things we can do immediately to to help limit the damage great so um with your current role at the moment do you want to give us a little bit of background on the work you're doing um and the company that you're currently working for yeah definitely um so after a couple roles um after i left the sorry um, paul i will cut you off uh there jamie uh paul is actually a partner in the firm that he's working for at the moment so i will sorry. i will just stress that point too paul is now a shareholder <laughs> and partner in the firm so he's not he's not just walking as an employee he has all the responsibilities of making sure checks can get paid to employees as well so I'll, I'll just i'll just add that there's just a little bit more leadership pressure that's uh put on paul at that stage as well <laughs> it's definitely and it's good to um to learn. and again like i said the learning the learning never stops and that's probably the area where i'm learning the most at the moment um but after a couple of roles um uh, i was lucky enough to as tony said um help with a very early startup company and end up becoming um a lead within that company called xrd um so XRD was founded in 2019 um, by an, an ex-colleague of mine from the from the military. He was also an ex-signals officer um, and also a um, an ex-public servant um, who was working into the federal government. So we, we've got a, a very good background understanding within defence, and and um, all of us are actually veterans. So we um, we started the company um, focusing on, and we we sort of brought it 
the team together because of our, our different skill sets, but also complementary skill sets. So as discussed, I've, I've got a cybersecurity focus. Um, Dan, our managing director, has got an artificial intelligence and a applied research focus. And Campbell, one of our other um, directors, he is a software developer engineer. So both amazing at what they do. So we've um, we've come together in order to build a company who we want to work for, um, and that's sort of the premise of everything that we're that we're that we're doing and building. We we couldn't find the right fit for us in any sort of particular area, so we wanted to build something which did important work, um, had a, a social benefit as well. So we look at how we can put advanced technology into sort of social scenarios and, and develop solutions in those areas and and provide um, provide our expertise to, to areas or customers that potentially couldn't achieve them through other means. So um, we have uh, different philanthropic activities that we conduct um, and also it's all about for us the problem. So looking at the most complex problems and how do we use technology to solve them, and and then how can we use those solutions to to better society and in, in more in more general terms. What's some of the problems um, that you've really enjoyed? I don't know how much deep you can go into them, but what's some of the problems and that you guys have faced that and, and you've enjoyed that sort of challenge of working through it. Uh, so there's, there's been a few. We do have a um, sort of a very customer base, but I suppose it's um, what I really enjoy is we we have we've had a few problems or, or complex problems ourselves that we've had to go through, and we've um, we've then looked at this and thought, well, if we had so many issues with this, um, how do we how do we provide this to other people because they're probably there's going to be other people who have issues with this and um i'll probably focus on a, on one of our more social initiatives and we're looking at um sort of partnering with some bigger technology companies to provide a a better way to conduct veteran research um so there is a and it's, it's been widely publicized i don't want to go into too many details here but about the um the veteran mental health state at the moment there's um the royal commissions has been announced into uh veteran suicide uh but previous to that before that was um was announced there, there's obviously a big problem within the veteran community in in how um people were managing their transition how people were finding themselves there was also people within the defense forces who um who struggled with mental health and there's there's a big a big gap in the understanding of why this is occurring. Um, so we're we're working with some bigger partners and some other um, not-for-profits who are specialists in this area to look at how we can provide technology to support advanced research into this area. So this comes down to um, the collection and storage or the safe storage of, of medical records, making them accessible to researchers to then conduct research on that and then hopefully um, look at some sort of preventative measures or some some different activities that can be conducted to support veterans more holistically, but also that can be used practically, whether it be within the Defence Force, within Department of Veterans Affairs, or even just personally with each of the veterans to, to improve their mental health. Um, so that, that has a bunch of things in it. So you, you look at the safe collection of information from people, uh, maintaining that trust that people can provide their medical records, the, the, the anonymization of those records so they can be used for research, um, and also the support um, for them through that process. So it's a bit more holistic than just the research. It's also looking at how do we create 
an environment where people um, can reach the support they need immediately. Um, how can we use data to achieve that? So it could be, um, you know, using using analytics to be or provide more targeted uh, mental health support information. Um, we know that veterans themselves are not usually the ones looking for mental health support. It's their families and friends. Um, so how do we do enable those support networks to find the information they need very quickly when there's um, when there's someone who, who might need support or they indeed need support themselves? The, um, the information out there is very hard to find. And unless you know how to navigate a defence webpage, which aren't necessarily the most user-friendly things, um, yeah. it's really difficult to find. So the, the project that we're looking at is, you know, the secure collection and storage. We're then looking at the analytical side of things on how we provide, um, how we can apply different learning models to that and, and, you know, different artificial intelligence techniques to gain outcomes, um, analysing that data, and then how do we have a social impact by implementing some some new new procedures or techniques or um, new awareness into either the ADF, Department of Veterans Affairs, or just the community? Tony, I know this is something that's it's big on the, the charity that you're working for with at the moment. Um, how have you sort of seen that space as well? Um, I was actually intrigued, and the first thing I thought of is there's a couple of people I have to shoot this email, uh, this podcast to as soon as we hang up <laughs> on it. But it's um, but it's it's been very interesting with um our analysis, as you know, Paul. I'm a director of uh, Carry On Victoria, um, yes. which is a charity supporting uh, homeless veterans. And uh, so we, we're not just homeless veterans, we help with bills, education, education of their kids and a whole range of things. It's 88, 89-year-old uh, charity now. The The interesting part of that is in our analysis, and of course we did an analysis there on the education that is required for veterans, how I met you when they come out of the service and receiving financial uh, help. A lot of the, a lot of the veterans uh, do get DVA payouts uh, for injuries sustained uh, during service. Uh, injuries or mental health issues are sustained during service. But uh, what we found is there's a whole heap of them that can actually fall into a hole when their brotherhood is taken away from them, and they don't know where to turn and things like that, and they end up blowing it all. Or as uh, Major Nick Mundy once said to me, you know, the amount of uh, black B8 utes in the car park is actually quite astounding. Uh, you can see who's actually, you know, from um, uh, people who are actually in service at the moment. But one of the interesting things that came out of it is we've actually only had one officer reach out to us in the last three years regarding uh, requiring help, uh, financial assistance. A lot of the people who were reaching out uh, to our charity for help, and we supply 40,000 nights a year in beds uh, for yeah. for veterans um, in all of our properties around Victoria. And I actually found it quite interesting that the people that predominantly need our help in the charity are the, uh, the people who were not officers. Now, as I said, we've only ever had one officer in the last three years actually reach out to us. So there's either a couple of things that come from that, and that is that officers do seek help. Um, and uh, people who were not officers in their service, um, you know, they might have had 20 years service, uh, but were not necessarily officers, find it a little bit more difficult to reach out for help. 
Um, and so in, re in regards to especially the uh, mental health, and I think the divorce rate is just obscene. Um, it is just absolutely horrific um, in respect to a lot of these veterans not reaching out for help. Yeah, and there's so many factors. And I um, know, oh, sorry, Paul, I also know you did work um, at a charity, uh, veterans charity for quite some time as well when I first met you, actually. Yes, yeah, that was yeah. My, my first rollout of the military, actually, was in a uh, in a charity providing financial support to people, and that was that was very we're actually we're actually we're actually doing a lot more work with them now. We've okay. just started, yeah, so doing more work with them now, actually. Yeah, it's excellent, and it's um, it's probably similar, and it's there's so many factors, and and that's where the the advanced analytics comes into it, and um. There was some one of our research partners. They did some more general research on on the community and um, some from medical data, and they found that the people who had the highest rate of of mental health illness actually had the most frequent change in postcode. So because that's associated with um, with homelessness. So the fact that there was, and that come from billing data, it didn't even come from anything that was found during a GP appointment or anything like that. They actually identified that from the billing data, if someone's postcode changed frequently, then they were more, more likely to be experiencing um, mental health illness. So it's, um, it's amazing what the data will tell you when you just let it speak instead of trying to, to come to a conclusion where, you know, you might be getting the GPs to ask a specific set of questions in order to obtain what's happening, but something as simple as where's the bill going to really tells the story. So that's why um, why we're looking at, at different aspects of things and there's so many challenges that we're finding. And, um, for example, records prior to the current um, digital record keeping within Defence Health was all um, – so not Defence Health, the, the fund, Defence Health, Defence um, – sort of GPs and clinics and the set that provided with each of the bases was all handwritten on carbon carbon copy paper. So how do you translate that or or bring that data into a system that can be used for analytics? And that's one of the biggest is hand handwriting recognition is one of the biggest challenges that we've got, funnily enough. Um, so and that's before I think that is before sort of 2014. So that's a that's a large group of veterans who have complete paper-based or PDF-based records that, um, that can't be actually easily extracted and then the information from there and then shorthand and different doctor's writings, which um, we all know can't be, uh, isn't the best at times. So if, if, again, we had to try uh, if we had to try and upload Tony's <laughs> handwriting, mate, there'd be no one to decipher, I'm telling you that much. Yeah, so it's um, it's really, it's an interesting problem and, and the, 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 you know, the soldier sailor or airman or a woman approaching as opposed to officers it it could be anything and it, it could be that um officers are seeking other support it could be that soldiers are better at keeping in contact with each other and can tell other soldiers or um about services that are available uh how to seek help um it's there's so many factors but the the fact that you're providing that many nights of accommodation just one sort of veteran support charity um in a year it just it just shows that there's something that needs to change or many things that need to change in order to um to get a better picture and then to provide uh many options and bring the the thousands of, of veteran support um charities and not-for-profits that are around there together to to provide that 
you know, that sole outcome of uh, improved life or um, situation for the veterans. Paul, in regards to what you do with um, other areas of work as well, how do you, I mean, I know, I know you guys work uh, with defence and with uh, governments as well, but in regards to a business that is, you know, it, whether it's a building business or um, a, I mean, we, we did see there was one developer, I won't mention their name, but they got, um, you know, invoice was like $900,000 and uh, through a cyber security attack and their uh, finance department just paid the bill and they didn't realise afterwards and that it was a false cyber security attack uh, that was actually done. So how do you, so I mean, obviously there's thousands upon thousands of different industries in, you know, all around the world, but how, how do you, from a cyber security uh, perspective, come in and help these clients or how do they reach out to you guys to say, we don't know what we don't know? Yeah, and that's that's one of the biggest problems we're finding is the cybersecurity is is quite a, a complex area, not because of the security aspects, but more of the technology landscape. We've seen, um, I've seen some funny things where it was, you know, what was what forced your your technology acceleration within your company, and it had sort of two two other options, and then the third one was COVID, which is very true. So organisations overnight had to adapt and, and adopt different procedures, and and most of, most of the time that was technology, so they could keep operating. Um, which means that something which we we used to call in the security industry was the security boundary. So a security boundary would traditionally be you know, an environment within an organisation. So a company has got their internal servers, they have a firewall which goes to the internet and they've all they've got to do is just protect that corporate network. But um, with the adoption of more software as a service um, and more cloud-based um, providers out there and different applications that companies are using to conduct their daily business, that security boundary doesn't exist anymore. So you've got data in different locations, you've got people accessing different things, you've got... Um, people using their home network for business uh, activities, which doesn't have the same level of scrutiny or even the same level of security placed on it um, as a corporate environment B would, would have. Um, and that security boundary is, is blurred. So that's where the complexity comes into it. Um, so the, the first thing we do whenever we're engaged by someone or we're talking to different organisations is we try and work out a current state. So we, we, we sit down and we talk to as many people as we can and we understand exactly how they work. So you talk to the, the most junior person in the organisation and you talk to the CEO or the managing director to understand what they're doing and how they do their job because those two things rarely match up. Um where there might be all this policy and procedure in place at the top, but practically that doesn't work. And with the pressures to get things done and pressures to meet different KPIs and timelines, employees or, or even um, different parts of the business will find ways around blockages. So that could be a security um, policy or procedure that's been put in place, but it doesn't work for them to do the job they want to do. So they circumvent that instead of finding an alternate way, which is which is more secure. So you'll find that, um, each organisation is very different. So understanding that current state is essential and, and it has to be what's on all. It has to be completely truthful and honest and create a culture of um, of sharing because if, if you have a negative security culture, then they say, oh, no, I definitely follow that procedure. I, I don't 
use USB keys to do X, Y, and Z, but in fact they're using it multiple times a day and you're not aware of that threat vector, then you can't address that or introduce anything else to support their business processes at the same time. And then all the work you do is for nothing because everything looks fine, but in reality the the, the way people are working daily is, um, is different. And you look at bring your own device policies, people um, in smaller organisations that can't support a, a laptop or a phone for each of their users, so they're bringing their own devices, and that device um, might not be updated, and it could introduce another another threat vector. They're using the same home network that their children are using different devices on, um, and and the list goes on. So understanding that current state is current state is essential. It's it's interesting, Paul. I think that um, I mean technology has brought so many advantages and opportunities and and just freedoms in a lot of way as well. Sometimes uh, too much freedoms in the way people express themselves in social media. But uh, that gripe of mine aside, the the <laughs> it's it's interesting though that you know between with all these freedoms and opportunities that technology actually provides us. Uh, it's also created a whole new criminal element as well, obviously, uh, whereas once upon a time, you know, somebody would put on a balaclava and rob a bank with a gun is very violent, whereas nowadays you just have your bank accounts empty and you don't even know about it until 48 hours later when your credit card gets rejected, uh, you know, when you're going shopping at Coles. So yeah. in respect to what you guys do and as um, a... Um, a tech lawyer uh, that we've actually done a bit of work with and we'll continue to do work with ourselves as well, um, you know, just in regards to looking at the legal aspects of everything you do and everything you do for the client and, you know, what is the cybersecurity the, um, that you have. So it's not necessarily just, though, a, a client losing money by being scammed. It also can be, you know, information uh, just being downloaded and stolen. And I remember watching a, um, a UK law lawyer series, which was actually really good, but I've forgotten the name at the top of my head. Um, but it was a great, it was a great sort of three part, uh, three series um, part. But on one of there though, it was the um, it was based on the cyber hack that occurred with that uh, internet dating site for um, people who have affairs. And I can't remember the name at the top of my head, which is probably a good thing. So it's, uh, but the, um, but it was, it was based on that, uh, that cyber hacking where all the people who were actually on that, uh, all their information was done and they're basically held to ransom. Uh, you know, we will tell your significant other uh, that you're being on this, uh, online dating business if you don't pay us money and things like that. So so I yeah. suppose it's not just you protecting your own bank accounts, uh, but it's actually protecting all your clients' information that they've provided you as well. Yeah, of course. And um, it's it's quite and, – and again, it, it, it really um, has changed and the complexity comes with sort of – we look at people, process and technology, but really focus on the people. So if you educate – the organization or a person then they can really do what the process and technology are doing anyway but you're just providing that the biggest asset within the organization the the most awareness of what's happening and this goes straight to to what you were saying there where if people are aware that the data that they share on the internet or they put into a website is now lost then people will start thinking about what they sign up to how they sign up to different things what emails and passwords they're using um, and what data they're giving out 
because you, you like you said you are trusting that organization with that information you know using emails to send different things around and, and as you referenced before that business email compromise where um criminal element intercepts an invoice changes the um the bank account details and then that's paid that that's very common um and it's happened in australia a few times um where companies have lost a lot of a lot of money and that comes into that process where you know you have different things in place is, is your ceo approving um or your cfo approving fund transfers through emails that you can't verify is it being followed up with a call um that type of thing but when it comes to the data that companies are collecting um it really it's really complex and really um, pertinent now that they're aware of what data they have and why, um, especially with the data breach notification laws which are in place. And, and as we move forward and the new legislation being proposed in Parliament now about the ransomware um, payment uh, alerting or awareness or, or notification where organisations may be forced to to tell the government or ACSC or the Australian Cybersecurity Centre if they've paid a ransom in order to get their data back. Um, they'll become more and more uh, information out there and they can come into more scrutiny. So if they're not looking at how they're firstly collecting data, why they're collecting that data, do they need to keep it? And if they do keep it, how, they, how do they secure that data? Then um, they're going to have more complexity moving forward. But if, if you can... If you can justify every piece of information you're collecting, you're collecting it for the right reason. It's been stored appropriately. It's within, if it's the most important asset of your organisation, it's it's got different layers of security. You have the appropriate backups in place. So say, for example, a ransomware attack um, or a company is under a ransomware attack and they lose their, their whole customer database, they don't have to pay the ransom because they've got good cyber security hygiene and they've got some resiliency there where they can say, we're not paying, go away. They then secure their network, put their, their most recent backup onto the system and they're up and running again. Uh, where organisations run into the biggest problems is when they don't have those processes or procedures in place and they're not tested um, regularly. So when they can't recover from a cyber attack, quickly and then they end up looking at the business risk going we're offline now for one week which is costing us x amount of thousands of dollars let's just pay the ransom and get our data back but as we've seen with a few of the ransomware attacks once you pay the first amount they'll ask you for the same amount again and then there's no guarantee that they will um, will actually give you the encryption key so you it could be um a very expensive lesson in in um in not trusting people who are holding you to ransom but um, cyber resiliency is, is, is really just defined as the ability to operate under cyber attack. So if you have the right procedures in place where you have a good backup, you have a good refresh and restore system in place, your staff are aware of what's happening and how to act and what to do, um, incident response plans being kicked in, then a company can recover quite quickly and the only cost will be their time and resources to get that network running again instead of paying, you know, it could be, could be millions to a um, to a ransomware criminal organisation just to possibly get a key back or trust them to give you a key back to unlock your data. Paul, just um, one quick last question: Does having the the three areas that you guys actually specialise in, so does having the machine learning basically continually going through all of your uh, software, so the internal machine learning, the AI, and then there's having that area of the business, I suppose in some ways, helping reduce the potential of human error 
because it's automated. A lot of the information is actually done and automated uh, that comes out of it. Does that help reduce the risk to cybersecurity as well? If you're all three of them are working in cohesion with each other? Yeah, yes, in short, yes. And it's probably it's a little bit more in, involved where sort of AI is one of the most disruptive technologies that that we'll see in, in probably my lifetime. And the rate that the field is growing is is exponential. You can just see through the amount of research being conducted, the amount of products coming out, and the amount of companies popping up every day who specialise in AI. So it's definitely something which people need to get used to. Um, and it's also something which can apply to many industries. And if you look at like you were talking about before, and and as we can talk about with cybersecurity, that there's a there's a significant skill shortage within cybersecurity in Australia and and global. Um, so by using things like AI to conduct that deep level of analysis on large data sets, uh, look for trends and and anomalies within an environment. So we have a baseline, and then something's changed because of a cyber attack, and and having something like an artificial intelligence system that can pick that up and quarantine that portion of the network or that workstation uh, is where some real value will be um, will be created and is being created by different organizations so that stops you know that immediate action it, it stops a lot of flow on where it could be um, you're isolating a ransomware attack very quickly so less files are encrypted um, it could be monitoring uh, different user accounts to make sure that hang on you know, Paul was doing this yesterday, but today he's downloading gigabytes of data that, that seems out of character. Let's just quarantine him for the moment and ask if that's supposed to happen. Um, things like that. And also uh, more broadly, analysing millions of cyber attacks across the world and providing better detection and uh, so threat detection um, mechanisms so organisations can see something before it occurs due to the the preconditions which have been set up where an attack might use a particular threat vector um, and different cybersecurity systems could alert them that, hey, by the way, your system's vulnerable based off the attacks which occurred in the US or the UK in the last week. So um, you need to patch or you need to look at how you're operating a particular piece of software um, because it can look at how those those different things are, are working and also compare that to the system that you've got um, you got in place, and it also um, the AI is 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 here forever. There's cloud service providers which make AI available to everyone at a price, and it's a pretty reasonable price when you compare to the cost of supercomputers or larger computers which can um, which can operate these things. Um, no longer is it a a rich company or a government organization or a university's game. You can log on to Amazon or or, um, or Microsoft now and, and start doing artificial intelligence processes. Um, so it's really available, which obviously, if you're looking from a threat perspective, it means that it could possibly be used to um, coordinate or conduct attacks, which means that that immediate response and understanding of the, um, of the preconditions for attack are more important because that means that Defending a network can happen much quicker, and that the impact of a cyber attack can be um, can be re- greatly reduced through those immediate actions that AI can can support. Okay, Jamie, did you have any other questions for Paul? No, I got I got one quick one for the listeners. What's your number one tip for protecting yourself on your home internet? <laughs> <laughs> Don't go to bad sites. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what was the old one we used to use? LimeWire, or is that where you used to download the songs from? I, I reckon I used to blow mum's computer up every six months. Yeah, you download all the viruses. So yeah. I suppose 
Oh, there's probably about five number one tips, but the number one tip would be um, just make sure all your devices are updated as as regularly as possible and you've got automatic updates set for all the devices um, and also the, the password protection of your home internet. So make sure you're not using default passwords for, for home internet routers. So you, you get it and you're changing passwords. Make sure you're not using the same password for a lot of things. Um, so unique passwords, use a password manager across your, you know, your banking and your Gmails or your Hotmails or whatever email addresses you're using because um, if you if you go to um, Have I Been Owned website and put your email in there, then more likely than not you'll see that um, your email has been compromised. And if you're using that password across different accounts, then potentially there's, there's ways that people can access different things. So um, keep things secure. Don't um, don't reuse passwords. Um, update everything that you have on the network, and um, and yeah, as Tony said, don't go to dodgy sites or download um, things illegally that you're not too sure where they come from. Yeah, you've uh, thankfully my boys aren't teenagers anymore, Paul. But <laughs> you guys, you guys are about to start that process. So you and Alex, so it's uh, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's good to have Dad, who's sitting at home as a cybersecurity expert, to protect the kids. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, yeah, I, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. I, we seem to overcomplicate home networks, which I'm about to uh, go into that uh, that phase now, where cabling and and different devices put throughout the network at home. <laughs> <laughs> the new house. Okay. Yes. Uh, Paul, thank you very much. Not a problem. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's good. It's something I can talk about all day, obviously, with, um, with what we just went through. Um, but, yeah, it's something which I'm really passionate about. And, and with XRD, bringing all those capabilities together and, and looking at how we can impact or have a positive impact within society, that's, um, that's something we're really, really happy to be working towards and, and helping people as well as building a company that we're really happy with. That's fantastic. Um, just on that note, I'm sure you won't mind, but if we can put your website details and everything like that on the podcast, uh, XRD and everything you guys do. Yeah, of course, definitely. Yep, wonderful. Okay, Paul, thank you very much. As I disclosed earlier, you are a client of ours, uh, a wonderful client of ours, and thank you so much for sharing this information with our valuable clients. Not a problem. Thanks again for having me. Thanks, Paul. Thanks. The Kofkin Bond Podcast is a product from Kofkin Bond & Co, which we are an authorised representative of Kofkin Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of the Kofkin Bond Podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Bond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond and Co. and the host of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.